Welcome to the first a Renegade Economist from the All the Good Things journey around Australia. Yes, my family and I left yesterday, got into Eden at about 11.30pm last night. I'm absolutely shattered. Today's show is a highlights reel of some of the many choice interviews over the last six months uh, featuring Michael Pascoe, Friendly Geordies, who I'm on the road to Sydney to do an event with. It's called The Other Sydney Lockout, Tuesday, June 28. Tuesday, June 28. Share it with your networks. Love to meet you there and play the new Spot the Bubble game. So Friendly Geordies, Saul Eslake's coming up. Uh, another sample from Mr. Robot. Niels Nyman's also on the show. And we finish off with Jesse Hermans and Carl Williams. So uh, great to have your support here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. We're the same. We're perfectionists. I've seen our waiter here for the last seven years. Must be in his 50s. Maybe has kids. Divorced, second wife, more kids. And I wonder, what must he think of himself? His life's potential reached at a 30 grand a year salary, an economy car he still owes money on, two bedroom apartment, child support, coupons. I couldn't bear it. A life like that. A life of an ordinary cockroach whose biggest value is to serve me salad. Investors are being warned to steer clear of skyscrapers as vacancies in new developments reach an all-time high. But despite countless apartments sitting dormant, there are around 80,000 new units slated for completion over the next two years. What's wrong? Nothing. That's 82,724 homes that all must be secret eco-mansions. Welcome, I'm your butler to a chimp that drinks sand. As all these investment properties are using less than 50 litres of water a day. Come on. Do you know how many litres a leaking tap uses? Yes, as a matter of fact I do. I spent an entire Saturday counting it once. It is... 55 litres. Okay, thanks for doing that, but seriously, get a life. So if all these investment properties are using less water than a leaking tap, either they're all illegal test labs for wicked witches of the West wondering... <sighs> Still not immune, but why? Yeah, especially when their comeback is like, I, I provide good... Affordable, well, not even affordable, but they say that anyway. Affordable housing, quality housing, and that's my business. But really, what do you do? If somebody rings up and says, my toilet's broken, then they'll groan and grumble and get the cheapest quote they can and make it barely functional, right? They, they, that, that's, that's really the, most, the, the biggest expense that they have out of it. And essentially, what you're saying is, that really the only reason why their property is increasing is because of the economic activity within the region they have nothing to do with at all. But they're saying that, no, I'm, I'm putting in my bid. No, you just... It's, that, it's, it's literally that easy. It's kind of just like they've just planted a tree. That's about it. And they don't have to, they don't have to spray for pesticides or anything like that. It kind of just grows its own fruit and then they just come over and pick it and go, I heard this. It really seems to be that's the level of 
that's the level of involvement that a property investor has. So I, as a general question, which is what I've been wondering, just as educated as the questions I've asked before, who, where do you reckon property investors are in terms of evil? In terms of, do you think that mining magnates are worse for Australia or property investors or bankers? Which one, like if, you, if you were to put them in a ranking system, would you say that they're, like, at least property investors are doing something? Or are they really just like the multinationals that are sucking all of the money out of Australia and you know, giving chump change and saying that they're making jobs and just those kind of arguments? Do you think that they're up there with that? Well, it'd be so much fun, wouldn't it, to slap them all around? But uh, when we talk about it, we try to pull that emotion out of it and say, look, it's the system itself that is corrupt. And I read a fantastic article by Bill Moyers over uh, the weekend, and he was talking about this elaborate industry. He called it the income defense industry. And these are tax planners, lobbyists, philanthropists, all the insiders, basically the 1% who have orchestrated the the, the tax loopholes and beyond that even the sculpting of our education system so people can spend their 50, 60 grand on an economics degree now and not learn any of the sort of things we're talking about and in fact go on to do your masters and learn the exact opposite to the so-called free market ideology where I turn up to interview my old economics professor John Freeban and walk past a new lecture theory Theatre called uh, the Centre for Market Design. And this was essentially, uh, as Joseph Stiglitz says, um, MBA graduates now learn how to lobby to put up barriers, to put up fences around their business so no one can compete with them. And so the whole economics profession has been corrupted and sure, uh, property investors are um, part of that system in some way. So are miners. My God, can you believe Mitch Hook got an Order of Australia? I cannot believe that. I almost choked on my dinner last night and threw the, the plate at the TV when I saw that that had happened and he said, and hopefully my work has, has put an end to bad public policy. Oh, my God. Talk about flip out. Did you see that? Mitch Hook, the head of the Minerals Council of Australia, who decided that Gina Reinhart and uh, Marius Kloppers, the CEO of BHP at the time, um, deserved to make billions and billions of dollars and to basically um, destroy the most effective way to, to share this so-called common wealth of our, our minerals amongst us all. Now here's the sum total. The 30-year average of housing price appreciation is 7.25%. So while homeowners are appalled at having to pay 1.3%, they feel entitled to a windfall capital gain of 7.25%. And don't forget that the family home is already a tax haven. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's dubious uh, that the that there is no capital gain tax on the family home anyway. So if you put that 1.3% in the context of the long-term capital gain, and maybe you could, to help sell it, you could even do a deal that um, you could have a land tax as a percentage of capital gain. Um, you know, there's all sorts of compromises along the way to make people realise that it's, it's not that rich. 
Um, with with that rise in in land value, the appreciation of land value, it's worth perhaps thinking about that for a moment too. What does someone who owns a block of land do to deserve the price of that block of land going up in price? Uh, it's a windfall gain. It's really society that provides the lift in value. It's society that creates the extra demand for land, that improves the infrastructure, that improves the education and health possibilities that make any given block of land worth more now than what it was in the past. So it's not unreasonable for society to get a share of that appreciation. In other words, what's clearly evident is that the figures which are quoted by proponents of negative gearing to buttress this claim that negative gearing is actually something that ordinary mainstream Australians do on this is quite misleading and a far better guide to how negative gearing is used and by whom comes from the Stats Bureau's regular surveys of income and wealth distribution and the most recent one of those for the 2013-14 financial year shows that 72% of the value of investment properties, that is all property other than owner-occupied housing, is owned by households in the top 20% of the wealth distribution, that is the richest fifth of Australian households, and that those same households own 52% of the amount of investment properly related debt. Uh, figures from the University of Melbourne's Household Income and Labor Dynamics Australia survey or HILDA survey that have been put together by the Reserve Bank show much the same thing. And the Reserve Bank has commented on this in some of its statements on monetary policy and reports on financial system stability, that the overwhelming majority of investment property debt is actually owed by rich folks, not by average, ordinary mainstream Australians. But I think assertions that the sort of changes that are being proposed will lead to a tidal wave of selling of investment properties are about as believable as most of the other claims that are made by negative gearing's proponents. I mean, in the first instance, the Labor Party's proposal is to grandfather those who already have negatively geared investments. And you would think, as I said before, that the result of that grandfathering would be to make it even less likely that people who own existing assets would sell them than any alternative policy. And I find it hard to believe that if the coalition also seeks to do something in relation to negative gearing, that it too wouldn't grandfather existing investments as the Labor Party is doing. But suppose, notwithstanding that argument, that there was to be some selling of negatively geared properties in the aftermath of such a change. You have to ask yourself, who would those properties be sold to? Well, they wouldn't be sold to other investors, presumably, since they would likely be deterred by the inability to enter into tax-preferred negatively geared arrangements as the result of any change. Rather, those properties would be sold, in all likelihood, to people who had been wanting to buy a home to live in themselves but had been frustrated in their aspirations to do so by the competition they faced from investors who had their mortgage costs subsidised through the tax system by other taxpayers. And so those home buyers who 
therefore became successful in meeting their aspirations to buy their own home would cease to rent, the demand for rental housing would drop by the same amount as the supply of it allegedly would, and there should therefore be no net change in the balance between the supply of the demand for rental housing, such as would have a material impact on rents. It's another one of the assertions made by defenders of negative gearing that, as I say, doesn't survive a moment's confrontation with facts. of something we're seeing more and more of, that when, when politicians fail, it is interesting that civil society is beginning to step forward to fill the gap. I mean, you get serious tax reform in one of two ways. You either get it from a crisis that forces you to do it, or you get it through leadership. And unfortunately, there's not much in the way of leadership around at the federal or at most state levels. There are exceptions, but by and large, um, you know, the pollies are looking after their own jobs, their own short-term jobs first, everything else second. So civil society is increasingly stepping forward saying, look, we're open to reform because we understand better than the pollies that for our standards of living to be sustainable, for us to continue to have the society we want to have, 
we have to be prepared to fix things that need fixing. Well, you know, Henry George has always been about communities and open source is about communities as well. So I had been doing a lot of work in intellectual property and the idea of what spurs innovation. And I've never really been a fan of this Schumpeterian notion that you have to create artificial monopolies in order to get somebody to invest in a new idea. So rather, I had been doing a lot of work on product platforms and the value of sharing ideas rather than turning ideas into something that's proprietary. So I've been interested in these issues related to intellectual property. And there are a lot of parallels with Henry George and his single tax and the notion that wealth is something that's created by human beings and is not attributed to sort of the rents that are associated with being in the right place in the right time. And so I just saw a lot of sort of parallels between the two ideas. And so this paper just shows how they actually fit together nicely. So, you know, in the 19th century, land was the source of wealth or a primary source of wealth. And now in the 21st century, we think of ideas and intellectual property as a primary source of wealth. And, the, and they both sort of follow the same general principles. Okay, well, let's um, head on back to patents and copyrights. Uh, what was the, the difference between the two and, and how can we find uh, some balance between uh, an incentive to uh, innovate versus uh, this need for competition? Well, so, so the idea is that, you know, when we're talking about intellectual property, once I share the idea with someone, then it is out in the public domain and there's no way that I can potentially extract sort of the gains associated with my insight or my new idea because others can appropriate it. So the idea is that if an idea can easily be appropriated by others, then who's going to invest in the development of ideas? So by giving a temporary monopoly, let's say in the form of a patent, then you've created an incentive for somebody presumably to innovate. And of course, the more valuable the market or the potential value of the market, presumably the more innovation you'll get. But what we see is that really, when we talk about the value of an idea, it's really not the first creator of the idea, but it's those who use the idea in multiple different ways that the original creator never thought of. It's actually the diffusion of an idea or new technology rather than the creation of that technology that has the biggest impact on an economy. And so the problem with a patent or assigning a patent is that by giving someone a temporary monopoly, Yes, potentially you're rewarding them for creating a new idea, but you're limiting the subsequent diffusion of that technology and ultimately potentially costing the economy a tremendous amount because that idea cannot be used by others without payments uh, in the form of a license or something else. 
And as a result, you're greatly limiting the diffusion of that technology, which could ultimately sort of undermine the value of the insight in the first place if nobody else is allowed to use it. And that's really the problem. You know, the other problem is that if you create rewards that are high enough, create a strange set of incentives where it's the equivalent of a lot. Do they have lotteries in Australia? Mm, do we ever? Okay. So, so you know that, you know, if the prize is sort of a modest amount, a few people will buy tickets or a normal number of people will buy tickets and the odds are whatever they are. And then if there hasn't been a winner for a while, then the pot gets bigger and bigger and the bigger the pot, the more people want to buy tickets. And of course, you know, what they don't understand, or maybe they under maybe they understand but don't think about it, is that the more people that buy tickets, the smaller the chance they have of winning the pot or or winning the entire pot. And so the problem is that as the pot gets bigger, you have more and more people buying lottery tickets, but their probability of winning gets smaller and smaller. So you've got more money flowing into this lottery and the chance of winning that big pot of money decreases dramatically such that, well, what probably didn't make sense in the first place now really doesn't make sense. And we've sort of set up the same kind of perverse incentives for the development of intellectual property. So if I can come up with a great idea and be assigned a temporary monopoly, then I could potentially earn a huge stream of income. And this creates an incentive for a lot of people to try and go in the market and develop a new technology. Exactly what those who traditionally sort of believe in this approach think should happen. But the problem is that the more people that you have trying to invent the same idea, the more resources that you're essentially wasting. So you're sort of pushing out the real entrepreneurs with would-be entrepreneurs who really aren't interested in developing new ideas and not necessarily capable of, of developing new ideas, but who enter the market purely because the possible payoff is so large that it provides this incentive for them to enter into a market where they really don't belong in the first place. And so you've got all of these people now looking to develop wasting resources when really you want, you know, a real entrepreneur or somebody who has the skill and the ability and the the talent and the experience to potentially solve this problem or develop this new technology. And so rather than getting more innovation, really what you wind up is squandering way too many resources. And when you look at it more globally, you find that on balance, you get less rather than more innovation in your economy. Don't be frustrated. Why shouldn't I be? What, 33 trillion or more pumped through the global economy? The EU saying, look, we're going to keep rolling it out. Japan on the case, America having wound it back and now starting to inch uh, interest rates upwards. Are those interest rate increases in America going to be the, the day of reckoning for this reckless monetary policy we've had now for so long? 
Well, actually, I would argue that those interest rate increases in the U.S. were unfounded and were actually um, more lobbying from Wall Street from rent seekers that were unhappy with the lack of return they were getting in terms of what they could get on reserves and they wanted a, a higher return. So they've been pressuring the Fed to increase rates and the, it, honestly, based on all the metrics the Fed used, it made no sense whatsoever. Unemployment was still high. Inflation was still flatlining at less than 2%. There was no... Uh, reason to do it, but they did it anyway, and you could see all the consequences that sort of happened in the uh, coming days and weeks after that effect. Um, you know, just currencies plummeted and stock markets hit, but I mean, how much of that was the Fed, I guess, is disputable, but there were certainly knock-on effects. In general, though, the, the monetary policy that central banks are pushing, just, it can't work on the basis that, I mean, they'll try and slash interest rates to convince uh, the private sector to borrow more to start reinvigorating growth. But then the question is, is what real income or production is going to back that increase in, in debt that the private sector is supposed to take? Like, What more consumption can the household sector do if all the consumption binge it did in the last 20 years was effectively credit? And they, if, they, if they've got to pay off their credit cards because they're not currency issuers, they're currency users, they have to find a source of income to pay back their debts. How are they going to afford consumption on standard everyday goods Absolutely. Uh, just <laughs> it, it can't be done it, it's just it's just not it's not possible i mean at, at that so that sort of policy of trying to reinvigorate private debt growth it just can't work it's a one-off sort of shot once it's gone it's gone you you can't just keep trying to re-push the i mean the, i guess the saying was a souffle doesn't rise rise uh, twice um, you, you can't get that. Once that train's gone, it's gone. So uh, in terms of uh, the federal government, if the federal government doesn't step in since it's a currency issuer and allow the private sector to de-lever in some capacity, we're just going to end up like Japan. I mean, in Japan's probably the best case scenario um, in terms of not doing anything because at least they had a trade surplus, whereas uh, mm. countries like Australia have a trade deficit. So we're always getting money sucked out of the country through trade deficits. So it's not necessarily a bad thing in of itself because we're getting real terms of trade and real goods in return. But if money keeps leaving the country like that and then the government's trying to impose austerity-like fiscal policy and trying to um, take money out of the private sector, what's the private sector supposed to do? It can't repay its debts, give money off to um, foreign imports and the government. Uh, and borrow more at the same time if it's got no income to, or production to back up that uh, borrowing. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with uh, an informal roundtable with some of the brains trusts here at Prosper Australia. We've got uh, Jesse Hermans from Fair Money Australia, our president, Catherine Cashmore, Brian Kavanagh from the Land Values Research Group and uh, our treasurer, Carl Williams, about to step on in now. How do you follow up a, a statement such as Jesse Hermans there? Where do we have to go, Carl? Well, with all of these questions about should we or shouldn't we uh, drop interest rates anymore, we've got to keep on bringing it back to the land question. Sure, business needs cheaper interest rates in order to borrow, invest and employ, but until we see land as being basically fixed in supply and uh, there being a never-ending demand for it, the more we lower interest rates, it's just going to put more uh, ability 
to borrow from the same fixed number of borrowers, which is going to result in, as we see time and time again, um, uh, ever unaffordable land. So sure, uh, make borrowing cheaper for business, but if all that's going to do is to inflate the market value of land, um, all that's going to benefit is those who own two or more properties and the wannabe first, owner, first homeowner, they're going to be the one stuck despairing at ever owning their, their own home as lower interest rates boosts the market price of land and, uh, and so the whole cycle goes on. So until we address the land question, until we take the speculative bubble out of land prices, uh, we're, we're always going to have this tension between wanting to make investment easier for businesses uh, and yet boosting um, the, uh, the, the never-ending land bubble. And that was uh, the first highlights reel from the All the Good Things journey around Australia where I'm going to be doing a number of uh, presentations regarding good old Georgist economics and our right to uh, a share of the land rent, the Commonwealth all of those principles that enable our very freedoms. We need more than just the ability to vote, don't we? We want economic freedom. That's what we're about here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. Thank you so much to all those who have supported over the Radiothon time frame. I still need more cash, so please donate to keep these public airwaves alive.